Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Bubble Hour, where real people tell real stories of addiction and recovery. I'm your host, Jean McCarthy. I write the blog Unpickled, where I've been telling my story of life after alcohol since my first day of sobriety eight years ago this week. And my guest today is Sam Anthony Lucania. Sam AnthonySpeaks.com is his website, and he is a speaker and an author, a man in recovery from drug and alcohol addiction who's using his sobriety to help others. Sam is the author of the book, Hands Like You're Praying, a memoir that he co-wrote with his wife, Rachel, about his long and twisted journey from addiction (laughs) to a life of recovery and service. Sam, welcome to the Bubble Hour. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm glad you're here, and I'm, I'm glad you're here on this planet because after reading your book, you know, man, I'm, I'm glad you survived everything you went through, um, and our listeners will get to hear a bit about that this morning. So how about we just jump right into your story? Tell us about who you are and how you got here today. Yeah, absolutely, and uh, I definitely agree with that. You know, I saw my hospital report after my overdose in 2013, and I'm not supposed to be here. I'm definitely one of the lucky ones, and Uh, I like to say that God has turned my mess into a message, and now I get to share my experience with others and hopes that they can learn from my experience and not have to go down that same path. So, um, you know, it's actually been a very rewarding last couple of years. I've been doing a lot of inspirational speaking in the youth market, traveling the country, going to middle schools, high schools, and, uh, you know, community events, and even some faith-based stuff as well, and have an opportunity to share my story and hopes that somebody can learn from some of the mistakes that I've made along the way. And, uh, you know, it's crazy because I always open up and I ask everybody to do me a favor and think of a dirty four-letter word. And all of a sudden, you know, sometimes there's some, sometimes there's a little chatter in the audience and stuff like that. Uh, And I come back to that and I make sense of it later. But, you know, I took my first drink when I was 12 years old. And when a lot of people hear that, the assumption automatically is that I come from a broken home, my parents must be addicts, they're probably divorced, I must have been neglected or abused as a child. And the truth is, none of that applied to me. You know, I came from a good home, my parents are still married to this day, there was no neglect, no abuse, no addiction runs in my family. But here's what was going on with me. When I was in middle school, I was full of anxiety. You know, everything made me anxious, just waking up, going to school, talking to girls, talking to anybody. I had no social skills, you know, because they didn't really teach that thing in the classroom, and it wasn't being taught to me at home either. Um, I was also getting bullied. I remember getting picked on in class. Uh, Kids would make fun of me because of how small I was. And because of all this, I was extremely insecure. Now, I don't know what you thought about me, but I was always very concerned with what I thought you thought about me until I took that drink. You know, when I took that drink, all those feelings went away. Alcohol had done for me what I couldn't do for myself. And I like to say that there's two different types of parents. The first parent thinks that their child is amazing and that they're never going to do anything wrong or struggle with anything. You know, there's no way that my kid's going to suffer from depression. My kid's not getting bullied, and my kid's certainly not going to experiment with drugs and alcohol. Then the other parent has no idea. And I believe that my parents fit equally into both categories. You know, they never thought that sweet, innocent little Sammy was going to go down into their liquor cabinet and take a drink when I was 12 years old. But after I did, they had no idea. And if they did, they had no idea how to handle it because I don't remember, you know, 20 years ago, uh, events going on where parents can go and talk about these issues. You know, luckily today we have 
the ability to, you know, go out to community forums and, you know, get on the internet and, you know, ask questions. But back then, you know, nobody really knew where to turn for things like that. And, you know, this behavior of mine continued going into uh, high school and high school, I started with what most people would refer to as gateway drugs or recreational drugs. And I got news for anybody listening. There's no such thing as gateway drugs. The gateway drug is the first one that you try. For some people, it's weed. For somebody else, it might be a prescription pill. You know, I tell these kids when I'm talking, if you're already drinking and vaping, that's your gateway drug. But more importantly than that, it's not the the substance that's gateway. It's the behavior. It's the behavior behind the intention of why you're doing what you're doing in the first place. You know, what's going on with you inside that you need to vape in between classes? What's going on with you inside that you need to – you can't be comfortable in a room full of people you've known your entire life without a red solo cup in your hand? You know, I can't speak for anybody else, but for me, I could be at a party with 100 people, and I could feel like the only person there until I took something or until I drank something. You know, that's what I mean when I say gateway behavior. And I just heard a story recently that, you know, pretty much solidified that point. I heard that they needed to discipline a student for sniffing crystal light, pretending that it was something else. So by all practical means and standards, crystal light is that kid's gateway drug, right? Well, more importantly than that, it's the behavior that they were exhibiting in the first place. Why is anything going up their nose to begin with? You know, if that behavior doesn't get checked out, it's going to lead down a path of destruction. After a high school assembly I did, I had a young man come up to me and say, well, what about recreational drug use on the weekends with my friends? You know, that's okay, right? I told him, no, it's not, and for two reasons. Number one, when I think recreation, I think paintball. I think skateboarding. I think cornhole. I don't think about popping Molly and doing lines of cocaine and taking Zanny bars. The other problem with that is every single person I know today, myself included, started off as a recreational drug user. You know, nobody, I wasn't sitting around, you know, sipping from a red solo cup and puffing on a joint thinking I can't wait to be overdosing on prescription pills 20 years later. That's how it starts for all of us. You know, I'll just have one. You know, it's just a little recreation. I'm just going to do it on the weekends. And, um, you know, Going when I was 16 years old, that's when I would say that behavior and that recreation turned into addiction. So when I was 16, I got addicted to prescription pain pills. Now, you know, you notice that my language shifted there. It started off with self-medication. It started off with trying to fit in, trying to get people to like me. But then there's some things in life, I don't care how strong you are, I don't care how talented you are, I don't care what side of the neighborhood you grew up on or what religion you are, there's just some things that, you know, you can't fight the addiction. It's very easy to tell yourself that you're going to take just one of something before you actually take it. But once whatever one is gets into your body, you, use, you lose the ability to control when you're going to take your next one or when you're going to take your last one. For me, it's usually when I end up in handcuffs or the ICU. Uh, I tore some ligaments in my ankle playing football, and the doctor sent me home with a prescription for Percocet. Now, this prescription had my name on the bottle. It had directions as to how I was supposed to take it. It said take one to two pills every four to six hours as needed. Well, I got home, and I was in a lot of pills, so, uh, a lot of pain, so I took one pill. And from there, it was all over. I fell in love right away. It had done for me what I couldn't do for myself, just like alcohol did. And I'm a pretty smart guy. If one is good, two must be better, right? So I went back and I took another one. And then the day after that, I started with two. And before you know it, I finished the entire bottle once again. You know, I wonder if I would have known then what I know today about prescription pain medication, if I still would have taken them. Because what I know today is that things like Percocet, Demerol, Vicodin, Dilaudid, Oxycontin, Codeine, Lean, all that stuff is is heroin in a bottle. 
The only difference is one comes from the dope man and the other one comes from the pharmacy. You know, those pills ran out, one's too many and a hundred's never enough. So I went back to doing what I would normally do, which is just drink and smoke on the weekends with my friends. And then all of a sudden the weekend became the weeknights. And then the weeknights became the week mornings and I was, you know, smoking before I went to school. And that behavior continued so much that I didn't even graduate high school on time. I had to go to summer school to earn enough credits to get my diploma. Now, I had a lot of not yets after I graduated. And for anybody that doesn't know what that is, a not yet looks like this. When I was 12 years old, I saw my father smoking cigarettes. Now, my father looked so cool when he would smoke cigarettes, and I wanted to be cool too. But I told myself I'm not going to smoke cigarettes. Not yet. When I started smoking cigarettes, I saw what I perceived as the popular kids smoking weed in high school. But I told myself I don't want to smoke weed. Not yet. When I started smoking weed, I told myself I'm never going to do hard drugs. I'm sure everybody can see where I'm going with this. After high school, doing cocaine was a not yet for me. And the few friends that I had left all started doing coke. And I didn't even like being around it. It made me uncomfortable. So I told myself I'm not going to hang out with these guys anymore. And I went home, and I went back to the room in my parents' house where I grew up, and I would get drunk and high by myself. Now, I don't know if anybody here has ever gotten drunk or high by themselves before, but it is a lonely, lonely place, and I really don't wish it upon anybody. It got so lonely, in fact, that I had to get out. So I told myself, I'll go hang out with these guys, but they could do what they want to do. I'm just going to drink and smoke a little bit. Now, here's why I think that they say things like marijuana and alcohol are gateway substances. You don't always make good decisions when you're under the influence. I was a little high. I was a little drunk. I told myself I'm going to do just one line of cocaine, and from there that one line turned into a nasty little habit. And being addicted to cocaine made me do a lot of things that I never wanted to do. It made me fight with people, made me lie to people, steal from people. And it made this innocent little Sammy wander around the ghetto of Newark, New Jersey at 3 o'clock in the morning. See, I figured that all my problems were situational. I never really took any responsibility for my actions. You know, it was always everybody else's fault. You know, if my dope man would have answered the phone, I wouldn't have had to go down to the hood in the first place. If I never would have started hanging out with those friends again, none of this would have happened. If I would have went to this corner instead of that corner. And since my problems had everything to do with everybody else, people, places, and things, and nothing to do with Sam, I tried to run away from my problems in 2004. I left New Jersey and I moved down to Virginia. But I don't know if people down in Virginia know this, but there's drugs and alcohol down there too. So when I got down here, you know, all the problems were still right in front of me. But the biggest problem is everywhere I went, there I was. I couldn't run away from myself. No matter how far I ran, no matter how fast I went, I just couldn't get away from myself. I did at this point in my life what most uh, clinicians would refer to as cross addiction. I didn't do any hard drugs, but I started drinking twice as much. And at the age of around, I think it was like 22 or 23 I was at this time, I became a full-blown alcoholic. Now, when I say full-blown alcoholic, I'm drinking about a fifth a day just to function. And I'm not saying that to brag. I'm just saying that to show people the severity of how bad things got for me. It's not like I was just having a couple beers after work. I had to have a drink in the morning just to walk out of my front door. Because if I haven't had a drink yet that morning, I'm afraid that you're going to come up to me on the street and ask me a serious question I can't handle, like, hi, how are you today? You know, if I haven't had a drink yet, I'm not capable of answering that question. My sister, when I moved down here, gave me some very clear-cut direction. You need to be looking for uh, a place to live on your own. You need to be saving up for a place on your own, and uh, you, there's no drinking in the house. 
well, the first two were very easy to follow, but that third one I just couldn't quite get a grip on. So she ended up asking me to leave, and uh, I moved in with a girlfriend of mine. And this girlfriend, her mother's boyfriend had a prescription for Percocet. And I was in the kitchen one day, and I opened up a cabinet, and there it was. I remembered what they did to me when I was 16 years old. So once again, no big deal. I told myself I'm going to take one pill. Once one got into me, I decided another one's going to be a little bit better. By the end of the week, I ended up cleaning out this guy's entire supply. Now, there was two problems with that. Number one, I took all his pills, which were medically prescribed to him that he needed, and now he might confront me for taking his medication. And two, and the bigger of the problems as far as I was concerned was I took all of my supply because by the end of a week straight of taking Percocet, I not only wanted them, but I needed them because I was getting sick. So now I needed to start seeing who I could buy them from on the street, I started going through people's medicine cabinets every time I was in their house, and I also started doctor shopping. And this actually led to my second arrest as an adult. I got arrested for prescription fraud in 2006. Now, the court system tried to offer me some help. They sent me to IOP. They gave me a suspended jail sentence. Um, you know, they had me do urine screens and stuff like that, but I wasn't ready to give it up yet. It definitely planted some seeds, um, which is a good thing. You know, they, they say that you can't force somebody into recovery, but... I could definitely look back and say that when I, when I was forced into recovery through the court system, it definitely planted seeds. It was unfortunate but true that those seeds needed to be watered with vodka for the next 10 years. Um, but I could definitely look back and remember things that I heard in the room and from other people in recovery that still stick with me to this day. Now, once I was off uh, probation and all my papers were clear, I was just going back to doing what I would normally do. And I ended up getting a roommate. His name was Jesse. And I tell this story for a couple of reasons. Now, me and Jesse used to hang out all the time together, and we would just get loaded after work. I would get off my bartending shift, and we would go home, and we would drink, and we would take pills together. But this night when I got home, something was a little bit different. See, when I got home, there was a bunch of emergency vehicles all over my front lawn. And Jesse's brother runs up to me, and he said, hey, Sam, Jesse's dead. He committed suicide last night. Now, I never knew anybody that committed suicide before. I never really knew anybody that died before and I never really needed a reason to drink or take drugs before you know it could have been a good day could have been a bad day I might have gotten promoted I might have gotten fired maybe I got a date maybe I got dumped it really didn't matter it's just how I dealt with life because I was so uncomfortable on my own skin it's really the only way that I knew how to wake up and go to sleep every day and it's usually at this point in my life when people would ask me this question they would say Sam why can't you stop drinking and using man You've been arrested twice. You've been in treatment. Your friend just killed himself. How come you can't stop drinking and using drugs? And if I could have looked back and said, said this to them, I would have. If you knew how I felt inside when I wasn't drinking and using drugs, you wouldn't ask me why I did it. That's the only thing. Because that's what makes me who I am. That's what makes me different, mentally and bodily different from my fellows. It's not what happens to me when I drink. It's not the trouble I get in. It's not the amount that I consume. It's what goes on inside my mind, body, and soul in between the drinks, in between the drugs. That's what makes me different, and that's why I suffer from the disease, whereas there's a lot of other people that just might be considered a problem drinker or, you know, a recreational drug user, if you will, no pun intended. Um, after Jesse passed away, 
I met a nice girl. Her name was Rachel. And uh, Rachel was a good girl. You know, I knew if I was going to get her and I was going to keep her that I was going to have to clean my act up. And I did. I mean, I cleaned up just enough so she can get to know the real me, but I never really sought any help for my depression or anxiety. I never went back to AA and got any sort of, you know, treatment or tried to work the steps or anything like that. Um, But she saw the guy that I really was and we fell in love and we got married. But, you know, we've all heard the saying that we're only as sick as our secrets. You know, and I could look back now and say that I was actually quite suicidal. Now, I don't know about other people, but when I hear that term suicidal, the first thing that comes to mind is, you know, kind of like my friend Jesse, somebody sitting on the edge of their bed, writing a final note, ready to end it all. And yes, that is one form of suicidal. I'm going to tell anybody that's listening, there's nothing romantic about it. There was nothing romantic about Jesse's brother running up to me and telling me what he told me. There was nothing romantic about watching Jesse's mother listen to the detective read that note. But the other form of being suicidal is the kind that I was. And it's defined as being destructive to one's own interests. And that was me, taking handfuls of pills, washing it down with a fifth of vodka, not caring how it affected me or how it impacted my loved ones. Because I'm telling you the truth, I was not trying to kill myself that night. I really wasn't. I was just trying to get right before my wife came home. Every night when Rachel would get off of work, she would call me, let me know that she was on her way home. I didn't answer this night. So when she pulled up to the house, she saw my car there. She assumed that I fell asleep. When she walked in the house, it was cold, dark, quiet, and according to her, there was an overwhelming sense of vodka in the air. She called my name again. She didn't hear anything. Then when she went in the other room, there I was. I was on the floor, and I was unresponsive and unconscious because I overdosed on prescription pain pills. She panicked like any loving wife would. She went across the street, got the neighbor. Her and the neighbor came back and started giving me CPR until the medics could arrive. When the medics arrived, they gave me two doses of Narcan, which I did not have a response to right away. They gave me four large bore IVs, one in each arm, one in each leg, and then they got me to the hospital lights and sirens. When I showed up to the hospital, they put me in the ICU. They stuck a tube down my throat, and they told my wife that we don't know if your husband's going to wake up. Um, I'm, I'm happy to say it's only by the grace of God that I did wake up, and I'm so, so thankful for that because I didn't want to die. I just didn't know how to live. So I did the hardest thing that I ever had to do in my entire life, and I asked for help. Now, the very first thing I asked everybody to do was what? Think of a dirty four-letter word. I'm willing to bet that nobody came up with the word help. See, to me, help is the dirtiest four-letter word I've ever known. It's the one thing that everybody's willing to offer but nobody wants to ask for because when we do, it makes us feel weak. You know, maybe if I would have asked for help sooner, I would have graduated high school on time. Maybe if I would have asked for help sooner, I wouldn't have had that overdose. Looking back, we'll never know, but this is my call to action to our youth today is that whatever it is that you're going through, there's nothing that somebody else hasn't already experienced, and more importantly than that, hasn't already overcome. So don't be too proud and don't be too ashamed. It is okay for you to step up and ask somebody for help. Um, I was told that the only difference between illness and wellness is the I or the we, and I stopped being I a long time ago. You know, Today I have a team full of people that are around me in recovery um, that are, you know, willing to help me with, you know, all the, all the challenges that I face on a daily basis. Um, so after my overdose, I ended up getting into treatment, 12-step recovery. I got into the church. I became a full-time professional personal trainer, and life started getting really, really good. Uh, my wife and I moved out of a little basement that we were renting into a nice condo. We took the honeymoon that we always wanted to take. We got a dog. We were even talking about starting a family. You know, life got so good, in fact, that I was kind of looking back on all that junk that happened in the past, thinking to myself, well, 
certainly I'm not that bad. I, I could probably have just one. You know, I swear it's the famous last words before every relapse is, I'll just have one. I could look back to my drinking and using history when I was 12 years old. I never wanted just one of anything. If I was trying to control my drinking and using, I wasn't enjoying it. And if I was enjoying it, I damn sure wasn't controlling it. So I don't know why I was always so obsessed with that idea. I went, I remember it was uh, 2014. I picked up my one-year chip, January 23rd, 2014. I never went back to another meeting after that. I figured maybe I'll pop my head in about six months and make a cameo or something like that and show everybody how good that I'm doing without the program. And since I had gotten so far away from all the tools that recovery had given me for living life 24 hours at a time, as I was getting closer and closer to a drink or a drug, I was left with no defense. So when the opportunity to take just one presented itself, I did it. And I took just one drink at a bar one night for some reason when I was picking up food. I can't even tell you why I did it. And I ordered tequila. I'm not even a tequila drinker. I'm a vodka drinker. But I ordered a shot of tequila for some reason. And I can tell you that the rest of that night was one of the worst nights of my life because I went to a bar and I took one drink. And that was the only drink that I had. And I came home and for the rest of the evening, I was restless, irritable, and discontent because of what I had done and thinking about the fact that I broke my sobriety and thinking about how hard it was going to be to have to ask for help to tell everybody that I messed up again. Yeah, I know the last time I drank and took drugs, I almost died and lost my life, but I wanted to try it one more time. That's what the disease of alcoholism and drug addiction does to us. We will not remember the suffering of a week or a month ago. I continued to carry on this secret and I didn't ask for help. I tried to do it myself once again, and we're told that pride comes before the fall. And I crossed another not yet. I crossed another line in the sand. Uh, I got back introduced to pills. I was taking them from people and hustling doctors. And I was sitting around work one morning, and I was fiending for pills really bad. I needed them. I was way past want at this point. I needed them. And I didn't know anybody that was selling them. I didn't know any doctors that would write me a legit prescription. But I knew a friend of mine that had some in her house. And I also knew where there was a spare key to her home. And I went over to her house, and I went into her home uninvited, and I took her medication. And I didn't know, like so many people do these days, that she had a camera in her home. And when she saw me on film going through her things and taking her pills, she called the cops on me, and rightfully so. And honestly, I'm so glad that she did because I was so sick and tired of being sick and tired. I was so sick and tired of being afraid to step up and tell everybody that I had failed once again, that I had relapsed once again, and I needed help once again. Um, so, you know, I got arrested for uh, breaking and entering. I knew I was facing a lot of jail time, and that's when I started writing the book. Uh, you mentioned the title of the book is Hands Like You're Praying. Um, that actually came from my arrest. That's what the police asked me to do right before they placed me in handcuffs. They told me to turn around and put your hands behind your back like you're praying. I don't know if God just thought I needed a clever title for a book, but, um, you know, that's, that's the way it came about. Um, I had six months before I was going to go to sentencing, and I knew I was going to do everything right. Um, I had called my old counselor up. I got back into another IOP. I started going back to 12-step recovery, got in touch with my old sponsor, started going back to church. By the time that I get to court, this judge is going to see me for the person that I really am. And I'm not a bad person that needs to do good things. I'm a sick person that needs help getting well. And now here I am, six months later, I'm well. Well, I don't think she saw that because she sentenced me to three years in jail. She had a little bit of grace in her heart, and she suspended a good chunk of my sentence, and I only had to go for 30 days, um, which was still awful. But, you know, 30 days is definitely, you know, better than three years. You know, I look back now, and if I had not gotten the, the grace and the mercy from that judge, I would have 
two weeks left in my jail sentence. And it's crazy. Actually, one week, excuse me, this, this Friday, the 29th, we're in uh, March. This Friday, March 29th, I'd be getting out of jail. And I look at over what happened in the last three years and all that I've accomplished to publishing the book, the tens of thousands of students, parents, community leaders, law enforcement officials, healthcare providers that I've been able to reach and share a, a positive message of hope, a call to action of asking for help. And that almost gotten taken away from me because our system doesn't really know how to deal with people that suffer with a mental illness and we're looked at as criminals instead of as people. And, you know, today I'm trying to help break that stigma along with a whole bunch of other people. Um, but I'm just so grateful for the, the 24 hours at a time that I've been blessed with today. And, you know, I have a rare opportunity that a lot of people that by the time they get to 12 step recovery, they don't ever get today. I've got a baby boy who's never seen his father take a drink or a drug. And I know as long as I do today, what I had to do yesterday to stay in long-term recovery when I wake up tomorrow is going to be another day that my baby boy has never seen me take a drink or a drug. And for that, I'm extremely grateful. You know, I'm 37 years old and I feel like my life has just begun. God has done so much amazing work in my life. Um, and I'll, I'll end by saying this, and I guess we'll open it up for conversation. They told me when I got the 12 step recovery that if I get sober and I stay sober, my dreams will become reality. And I want to let anybody know listening right now that that was a damn lie because I am living proof that if you get sober and you stay sober, your reality will actually surpass your dreams. And I can, I can tell you right now, nothing that I'm doing today was on my, was on my bucket list. When I got arrested in 2015, I was literally hoping that I wouldn't go to jail forever. My wife wouldn't leave me. And since I have to check off that felony box, maybe I would get a job at McDonald's if I'm lucky. And my today is better than I ever could have even imagined it. So if you get sober and you stay sober, your reality will actually be better than you ever could have dreamed. I love that point that you make because what happens as we heal is that we start to have new expectations for ourselves and new beliefs about what a good life really can be and is. And you're right, we can't even imagine that when we're stuck in denial and sickness. I love that point. Sam, you talk about your, your child and being a parent now, but earlier you said there's two kinds of parents, um, the ones that don't think their child will ever do anything wrong and the ones that are kind of clued out about what's going on. Um, how mm -hmm. will your recovery serve you as a parent? How is it a gift to your son? And what, what do you see as, as being your takeaway now as a parent? Um, how has your sobriety served you in that way? So I like to think because of my personal experiences that I'll be better equipped to handle it than uh, some others might. And that's not taking a jab at anybody, but um, I'll kind of know what the signs are, what to look for. And I'm also going to have that conversation at a very early age. And this is something I hear often from parents. They say, well, you know, when should we start having these conversations with our kids? And as far as I'm concerned, it's the earlier the better. Because at the end of the day, it's not if your kid's going to get introduced to drugs. It's when they're going to get introduced to drugs. And when it happens, I want to make sure that I'm there for it. You know, I want it to be in a safe, controlled, comfortable environment where they feel, uh, you know, okay asking those difficult questions. So, um, you know, I broke my anonymity on a socioeconomic level a long time ago. I mean, anybody that looks at my website or reads my book knows my entire life story. So it's not like it's going to be a secret in that regard. Um, you know, but you know, I would love the opportunity to possibly speak at his school one day, and you know, hopefully he could look up with me, look up at me proudly, and say. Yeah, you know, that's my father. And, you know, that's one of my favorite parts of the book is that last picture in the end. I had an opportunity to take a picture with Lieutenant Greg, 
And it was Lieutenant Greg and his team of first responders that showed up that night because, you know, without him, I wouldn't be here today. And I think it's awesome that I had an opportunity to, to take a picture with him and my son so I could show my son and say, hey, without this man, your father wouldn't even be here right now, and neither would you. Um, and that's pretty powerful. And, you know, I don't know how much that will mean to him when I'm able to present it, but, you know, hopefully that, that touches him in some way, shape, or form that will make him second-guess any, you know, poor decisions that he's making along the way. You know, I have to say that my dad was um, sober all all of my life. Like, he got sober before he was even married. And for me growing up, and he was always really open about it, like from the time I was a toddler, um, I remember him saying, you know, oh, well, being sober means that. Or when you're an alcoholic, you're an alcoholic forever, so that means I can never have a drink. And and so, you you know, you never have to worry about that, that I just, you know, that's just how how it is. And that baseline truth for me that, like, um, that is the that is the solution for addiction is abstinence. That was just a core belief. So that when I, it wasn't enough to stop me from having my own problems. But but when I did, you know, I'm really grateful that I had the solution modeled for me, um, perfectly or imperfectly. You know, and I I feel like that is a really fortunate thing. So I think your son is a lucky boy. You in your book you included your wife's voice and her perspective on this because she certainly rode the roller coaster along with you as you say. What was that experience mm-hmm. like for you reading her point of view and creating this book together? For me, I think her writing is some of the most compelling work in the memoir uh, because there's so much that I don't remember. Uh, I mean, just taking away the obvious, like the night that I overdosed. Like, yeah, I really don't remember a lot of that. But then there's so much too. I was just kind of in this alcohol or drug-induced stupor where everything just, you know, it was like Groundhog's Day. One day just kind of messed into the next. I was never really aware when it was daylight savings because night and day were just all the same to me. Uh, You know, reading her point of view and, you know, where she was at and, you know, how much pain she was in, but how much support she gave and how much she relied on God and our faith together that, you know, we too could get through this. And, you know, that's why we wanted to do it. Not to only show that the individual can recover, but, you know, the family can recover too, because it is a family disease and it affects people that don't even have it. And, you know, looking back now, after reading my parts of it, she can look back and say, like, oh, man, I knew it. Like, I, I knew that's what you were doing. But sometimes the people that are closest to you don't even see it. I mean, take my father, for example. My father was a paramedic for 20 years, and we grew up in Union, New Jersey. He worked on the streets of Elizabeth and Newark, and he picked up overdose victims all the time. He didn't even see the addiction in his own son. You know, sometimes it's hard when people are right there next to you. But with that being said, my aunt always knew. When I would see my aunt twice a year for holidays and such, she knew that I wasn't right. She saw the changes in me because she wasn't on top of it on a day-to-day basis. And, you know, that's the importance of, you know, involving other people. Because sometimes, you know, when it comes to our loved ones, we're too close to the problem to actually see it. When uh, thinking back to that young boy that you were, I, I wonder if you feel very close to that, to yourself at that age when you're speaking in schools. Do you see a thousand young Sams in the audience? And are you, are you sort of speaking to yourself, to who you were then? Like if you had heard yourself speak if you if if we could you know <laughs> do a back to the future and and have you be in the audience of your own presentation is that what you needed to hear absolutely and and I don't say this to pat myself on the back or toot my own horn but 
when I go in and speak to the students, I think I'm very relatable to so many of them on a lot of ways because I was not valedictorian. I was not captain of the football team. I got bullied, picked on, and ridiculed when I was a kid. But today I'm athletic because I'm a personal trainer and it's something I've worked towards. So I can kind of gravitate towards both now. So when I go in, you know, I don't get tuned out by one side or the other. You know, I don't have you know, some kid that's very academic and maybe not popular tune me out because they think that I was a jock in high school because that wasn't my case at all. You know, I, they hear me say that, you know, I got picked on in high school and they're like, wait a second, me too. I, they hear them say that I was always concerned about other people's opinions of me and they're like, wait a second, I feel like that. And, you know, that's honestly the most rewarding part of what I do. You know, the, when, when, I go to, when I go to your school and you write me my paycheck for coming out and talking to your students and I go home and, you know, I can keep the lights on in my house by doing that, that's awesome. But my real paycheck is when I get a direct message on Instagram from some young lady that heard me speak saying that she thought I was Vince. And because I'm so open and honest and vulnerable, a lot of these students are seeing themselves in me. That is really touching. And it's incredibly moving. I mean, I feel like there's so many strategies to how to solve this problem that our communities are going through. And unfortunately, um, just the process of bureaucracy and politics and, you know, school boards and everything that goes into creating policy and messaging and programming and the funding behind it and everything, the, the message can get really watered down and bogged down and, um, I don't know, just kind of lost. Like it's like the kids are so smart. They know when they're getting a whitewashed message, and they also know when someone is standing in front of them telling them the truth from their heart. I mean, you just the, – the hardest person to fool is a child <laughs> or a teenager yeah, who feels like an adult yeah, but is still a child exactly. on the inside. Yeah, so they, yeah, they, they know, know when someone exactly is telling them the truth. Yeah, Absolutely. yeah. I agree 100%. I feel like that's why they have so much pain too, because they, their intuition is telling them one thing, but then the people around them, you know, they might want to protect them or, or have a different version of what's going on. And so their brain is telling them one thing and the world is telling them another. And they're like, okay, this is, none of this is true. I don't know who to believe. I'm just going to go inside my head and be alone in here. So, um, yeah, and I'm, they're afraid. I'm, they don't know who to talk to. They don't know who to turn to. My parents are busy. I don't really get along with the counselors. I don't want to tell my friends. Uh, or, you know, the flip side of that is I don't want to tell on my friends. Well, my best friend's really struggling with drugs right now or depression or she's cutting herself, but I don't want to tell on them because I don't want to get them in trouble. I don't want to hurt them. And there's two schools of thoughts on that. I heard this said beautifully once. There's a difference between telling on someone and telling for someone. It is okay to tell for your friends. It is okay to tell for your family members. And oftentimes we don't say anything because we're afraid of hurting somebody when the reality is by not saying something, we're actually hurting them. Talk more about that. I wish my friends would have told for me. My friends knew I was addicted to cocaine when I was 19 years old. I wish they would have told for me. You know, it's they probably didn't either because they were too afraid of getting in trouble themselves or they didn't want to break our friendship. But guess what? I'm not friends with any of them anymore anyway. Uh, one of them's dead. So, you know, at the end of the day, maybe I should have told on them too. You know, I'm going to take my, I'm going to own my side of the street for a second too. You know, I, I knew, I knew he was addicted. I knew he was an addict. I knew he had a problem with substances and I didn't say anything either. 
and he's not here because of that anymore. Am I responsible for that? No, I don't have the power to get anybody drunk or anybody sober. Um, but at the same time, I am responsible for the effort, not the outcome. And, you know, it goes both ways. You know, if you've got a friend today and you think they're, they're hurting themselves in some way, shape or form, it is okay to tell for them because right now they're not strong enough to tell for themselves. So, you know, as you're saying that, and I, that is a powerful message. Let's just shift gears a little bit if we can and reframe this for parents and adults. Mm-hmm. So how can, how can parents listening who, um, and uh, you know, the audience of this podcast is, is, is adult in recovery. So let's tailor this message for their ears about themselves, but also how can we message this and model this for the young people in our lives? So, you know, what does that look like as adults, you know, if our neighbors are going through something or like, how do we live that in addiction and drug use or, or just general pain? How do we, how do we know, I guess, is my question is when, when is the right time to do that and when it's not? It takes a village. Together, we achieve so much more. And it goes back to the the difference between illness and wellness is the I or the we. And one of the first things I do at every parent seminar is I ask everybody in the room, and I could have a room of eight. I can have a room of 800. uh, Raise your hand if you know somebody that suffers from mental illness, addiction, or alcoholism. 100% of the time, 100% of the people raise their hand. With that being said, even though we all know somebody or are affected by it in some way, nobody's willing to seek help for it because, once again, the, the labels, the stigma, and even down to your own neighborhood. You know, nobody wants to be the neighbor on the block that has the kid that's suffering from drug addiction. Uh, well, I don't want my, my son to – I don't want anybody to find out that my, my son's suffering, you know, from addiction or alcoholism or depression because he's not going to get accepted into a good college. Well, I got news for you. If he's addicted to drugs, it's not going to matter what college they get into. We need to deal with the problem at hand and not worry so much about the future. And we need to, the parents are just as, I don't want to say guilty. The parents are just as scared to step up and ask for help as the kids are. Um, Because again, they don't want to be labeled. You know, my parents, if they did know, probably didn't know where to go or probably too afraid because again, they don't want to have the kid that's suffering from drug addiction. They don't want, nobody wants to be that person. It's the same reason that us as adults are afraid to walk into a room of AA. What if somebody knows? Guess what? It's okay. And if somebody has a problem with it, that's none of your business anyway. You just need to deal with whatever it is that you need to deal with for you and your family. And if that means turning to your neighbor that happens to be a child psychologist to get help for your, your son or your daughter, then that's what you need to do. Don't worry about the college application. Worry about what I have a friend that says in uh, in recovery, you fix problems in the order that they're going to kill you. You know, <laughs> filling out the applications, filling out the applications. Not nobody's going to get death by application. But if your kid's cutting themselves, that needs to be addressed immediately. You know, right. so it's definitely you know as a community we achieve more, as a team we achieve more, together we achieve more. Um, we have to get rid of the stigma that. You know, if somebody's suffering from depression or anxiety, that we have to be ashamed to go and ask for help because of it. We don't. You know, I, I want to circle back, too, to something else you said, Sam, which is that um, even though um, going to, I think it was outpatient that you went to earlier on and you didn't stay sober but because you, you said you planted the seeds but then watered them with vodka. So if yeah. we try to help somebody or we, we know someone is suffering and we send help their way and they refuse it, that's okay. We have to let go of that outcome, right? Because, 
you never know, you know, when that it might be laying a foundation for future readiness. Or, you know, we say just do the next right thing in recovery, and I think that's also true when it comes to helping other people is just offer them the next, you know, offer them the right thing and, and then let go of what happens. Allow them to make their choice, but but be there and, you know, shine that light and and know yeah. that they may and come towards them. Yeah, that's wisdom from an old sponsor of mine. He said, Sam, you're responsible for the effort, not the outcome, you know, and the same thing with the parents. You know, you're responsible for the effort of offering it. Um, You know, we can go back and you go old hundred years, you know, quotes on the wall and say you could lead a horse to water. But, you know, that's all. But you're also responsible to be there if and when they reach out in the future as well. And just to let them know you're available. A lot of these kids don't know that their parents are available. Come up to me and say, well, who do I talk to? I'm like, well, the first person that you should talk to is your parents. Oh, my, whether it's a cultural or the parents are too busy or maybe the parents are suffering from their own ailments. Uh, at that point, then we possibly need to look at, you know, what's the next best thing? Is it going to be your school counselor? Is it going to be another trusted adult, like an aunt or an uncle or something like that? But um, yeah, the parents need to let their kids know that I'm safe. I am a safe place to come and talk to me about whatever it is that you want, whether you're getting abused at school, you're getting bullied at school, sexually harassed at school, you're suffering from depression, anxiety, you're cutting yourself, you can't stop taking – it is safe here. That is probably the biggest point that I would drive home is to let your kids know that coming to you with any problem, no matter how small or severe, this is safe. And if I would have felt that way when I was younger, maybe, again, maybe, I can't, I don't have a crystal ball, maybe I would have been more comfortable going to my parents with certain problems. Yeah, yeah. I think that's, that is really brilliant. And asking for help, you know, that is so true. It's so hard to do that. So we don't know how to give voice to that. And when someone says, well, and kind, well-meaning people say it all the time, if there's anything I can do, let me know. Okay, Um even to rephrase that, you know, to learn to rephrase it and say, what can I do? What can I do today to make today better for you? That's one thing. And the other, I mean, that's for the person offering. I just made this suggestion to a relative recently who was in the hospital uh, getting over a surgery. And she said, everyone keeps asking, keeps offering me help, but, you know, I know I won't take it. And I said, when you're alone, Make a list of all the things you wish someone would come and do for you that you would never ask for them to do. Just write it down, like cut my lawn, um, defrost my fridge, do my laundry, like all those things you wish a fairy would come and do in your house. And when (laughs) someone says, if there's something I can do, just... Just say, well, have a look at this list, you know, is there any of these yeah, look exactly. at you? <laughs> because if we're really honest, there are things we wish people would do, but we just sort of wish they would do them without us having to ask because it's so hard to ask. Yeah, and I actually take that a step further. I always tell people, you know, not asking for help is actually extremely selfish because then you're depriving somebody else the opportunity of helping you. Like if anybody's right. ever come up to you and asked you for help with something, by the time you get, even if it's carrying groceries up a flight of stairs, when you're done, you feel good about yourself, don't you? Well, yeah. you don't have the right to take that away from somebody, man. People like helping other people. Well, that's true. And actually, those of us in recovery know that it is a step to recovery. I mean, it is it is such an important part of staying well and staying sober that it's a step in the 12-step program is helping others, giving service to others. And um, I really feel like, you know, that that resonates, you know, in all things. So you're right. 
just by letting someone helping help you, you're giving service to them by letting them give service to you. I mean, it is yeah, really and it's a big circle. That's why I love the fact that I've literally made recovery my my full time job now. Because you know, when I go to a school and speak, if you know, if I say anything and somebody gets something out of it, that's awesome. I'm very happy for that, and I'm very grateful and humble. I'm not going to leave that school and hit the ABC store or call the dope man when I'm done. It's part of my mm-hmm. recovery too, which is awesome. Yeah, yeah, that is beautiful. I, I, I noted too, as you were telling the story about taking your friend's pills, reading your book, and and you were you were getting better, you were doing okay, but you were also then you start struggling, and as you're breaking into to your friend's house to to take her meds, you know that was one part that just it made me so sad. I was like, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it, <laughs> because you were building a life, you know, with your beautiful wife and. And these were friends. I mean, you were actually making friends. And the power of addiction to make you turn your back on things that you, you know, take take a risk like that in, in breaking into someone's house, betraying a friendship, doing all that. The, the power of that addiction over you to just lower your standards like that. There's a, there's a Robin Williams quote. I don't know it verbatim, but it's something about, like, I couldn't lower my standards fast enough to keep up with my behavior, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that sort of spiral, I think, speaks to the power of addiction and how it, it really isn't fun, and you're not even really getting high. You're just holding off withdrawal. You're just trying to feel well and you're just trying to not get sick by going into withdrawal all the time. How do you portray to young people that like drugs and alcohol might be fun now. They start out fun, but they aren't fun. Like addiction is not fun. Are you able to paint that picture for them or do they oh, are they able yeah, to see the past the now? The party stopped for me a long time ago. You know, the party stopped for me when it when it started with the cocaine at age 19. Um, and even I could probably look before that. You know, I was never uh, standing around playing beer con- beer pong kind of guy or sitting down playing asshole with a bunch of friends, you know, playing cards and stuff like that. You know, I was a fifth of vodka a day right out of the bottle. And, you know, I, I heard a speaker say once that I was always just trying to hit the mark. And sometimes I would hit the mark, but I can never stay there. And sometimes I miss the mark and miss the mark could mean that I didn't drink enough. And now for the rest of the night, I'm going to be restless, irritable and discontent, or I drank too much and I blacked out. Um, But I was never able to stay in one place. You know, I can never get the perfect buzz going and just keep it right there. You know, in the addiction side of it is uh, again, it goes back to what I, I touched on earlier where it said it's more about what goes on in my mind and my body and my soul when I'm not drinking and using because you know just to go back to that day you know I left work I drove to her house and I sat in her driveway contemplating whether I was going to do what I was going to do and to paint the picture even broader for everybody else her husband is in law enforcement so I'm running all this, the plays in my head maybe he's in there and he's going to shoot the intruder uh, maybe the dog who's in there that doesn't know me that well is going to attack me. Maybe the, it's broad daylight. It was like 11 o'clock in the morning. Maybe the neighbors are going to see him. But it didn't matter because the only thing that I needed, not wanted, I needed was on the other side of that door. And with all that being said, when I went in there, I was stone cold sober. I was not under the influence of anything besides the cunning, baffling, and powerful disease of addiction. I was not under the influence when I entered her home. That's how powerful this is. Some of the dumbest, stupidest, worst decisions I've ever made in my life, the disease, it, it happened when I wasn't even under the influence of anything. 
that's how powerful this stuff is. And, you know, it can't, it's not about partying anymore. No, nobody sits around smoking a blunt, drinking from a red solo cup at 16 years old, thinking, man, I can't wait to be getting arrested for breaking and entering 20 years later for stealing pills from somebody. Just doesn't happen that way. But it's just, it happens that quick in the blink of an eye. And that almost takes me back to the what you talked about being suicidal, too. I mean, like you say, like you you weren't alone writing a letter, you know, and ready to end your life, and yet you were ready to, you were, you didn't care about the outcome. <laughs> like you didn't care about the good mm-hmm. things in your life enough to not risk losing them. And, and that's a, you know, it, it's almost like a slow suicide. I tell that to people sometimes when they write to me and tell me how much they're drinking. And I'm like, do you realize that's what this is? This is a slow suicide that you've, you've, you've lost your will to live and you're just, you would rather drink than live right now. And yeah, it, 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 it just is. takes everything away from with you. That. Yeah. Uh, so um, tell me how people can find you and tell me about some of the projects you've got going on in the next little while here that, that we should be watching out for. Cool. Lots of exciting stuff coming up. So if anybody's interested in reaching out to me, my website is samanthonyspeaks.com. Uh, right now we're March 2019 for anybody listening and I am currently booking for fall 2019. If you're interested in having me uh, come out to your school, please reach out. I'm happy to, you know, put something together for you. Um, but I said one of the most exciting things I've got coming up is in two weeks, I'm going to be giving a TEDx talk. And I am very excited about that. I uh, have put a lot of time and dedication into this. I've been filling out applications for the last nine months and I've been rejected dozens of times. And I just recently found out that, um, it's funny, you know, I have a saying, is it odd or is it God? So I'm in Virginia now and I've been filling out applications for, you know, New Jersey, for California, for Texas, for Florida. And God's just like, dude, you got another baby coming in seven weeks. How about we just go around the corner and said, because I'm doing a TEDx talk in the town where I live. And, um, you know, sometimes he's just that good. And um, so I've got that coming up. I've got a whole bunch of other talks coming up. And, um, you know, I got another baby boy coming, which is probably the most exciting thing that I've got going on. My son is going to be coming sometime in the next seven weeks here. I am not ready at all. But, um, you know, God hasn't given me anything I haven't been able to handle yet. And together, my wife and, uh, you know, my, my network, we, we've been together just, you know, taking this journey one day at a time. And that's how I'm going to continue to do it. Oh, that's beautiful. I didn't know you had another little one on the way. Congratulations. That's exciting. Thanks. It's another boy, too. Wish me luck. I do. I raised three boys, and I have two grandsons and one on the way. And I'll tell you, boys are busy, but they're, they are wonderful. Um, and yes, I, my I'm, son right now, he's insane. <laughs> he's crazy. <laughs> he's a crazy man. Yeah, there, if there's something about watching those little people just discover the world and discover who they are that mm. just you know, you, it just it makes everything worthwhile, and um, I'm so glad that you are here to experience all of it, and that you're filled with the joy and gratitude, and and just the the energy that you have for your own life, and and um, and for helping others is is infectious and a really beautiful thing. So thank you so much for being here today, and for sharing your story. And and just before we go, Sam, I just want to ask if you just have any words of encouragement. If there's anyone who's listening today who's struggling to maintain their sobriety or who's what we call sober curious and thinking about embarking on this life without drugs and alcohol, what what words of encouragement would you have for that listener today? So for the person that's sober curious, 
go to a meeting. Just try it. And if you go to a meeting and you don't like it, go find another one. It's a lot like dating. The very first time you went on a bad date, you didn't stop dating altogether, right? No, you went out and found somebody that was the right date. It's going to be the same thing with your meetings. Uh, so go try it. Find somebody that you can relate to. Don't do what I did and look for all the differences. Look for the similarities in the way that people felt, in the way that they thought, not necessarily the external circumstances. And for the person that is in recovery that might be uh, struggling to get another day, go do something for somebody else. 100% of the time when I do something for somebody else, both of our days get better every single time. Thank you so much. Um, I just am so grateful you've been here and the hour has flown by as it does and um I just I thank you so much for telling your story on the bubble hour and and continuing to tell it out in the world you're saving lives and and making a difference. Thank you so much, Sam. Thank you for having me for everybody in recovery. Get another day. Yeah, another day. Uh sober with you all today. So um, thanks for listening, everybody. Um, I, as always, am, you can reach me through the Bubble Hours website. Nope, not through the Bubble Hours website, through our email, thebubblehour at gmail.com. You can find us online, blogtalkradio.com slash bubblehour. And I'm on Facebook, Bubble Hour, Twitter, Instagram is Jean McCarthy Writes. So make sure you reach out, listeners. Let me know what's going on with you. And, um, of course, you can reach out to Sam directly or you can send it to me and I'll make sure he gets it. That's everything we've got for this week, everyone. So thanks for listening. And until next time, take good care. Not proud, but that was me And when I face it, I take back A little dignity Not looking for excuses I just want to be free from power Weakness head on me In a dark corner is where shame lies behind We oh, you think you're strong you keep it on the side It just stays and wait there To rob you of your pride Turn the light on, turn the light on You can't shine When you say, oh, I did that Now how that was me And when I face it I take that A little dignity I'm not looking for excuses I just want to be free Want to be free.